Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. So welcome back to the third episode of PI World Sell It to the City. I'm your host, Tamsin Freeman, and we're here today on the 25th of April 2022 with three private investors who will pitch their highest conviction stock idea to leading fund managers, Andy Bruff from Schroeder's, Judith McKenzie from Downing, and Stephen English from Stellar Asset Management. And the idea is for the retail investors to uncover a hidden gem that the fund managers have overlooked. We've got an excellent lineup of private investors who will present in this order. Firstly, the winner of the first and second episode, Richard Crow, who's also known as Cockney Rebel and on Twitter as at Rebel HQ. We've got Neil Cooper, who's not on Twitter. And we've got Simon Cooper, who's not related. And Simon's also very well known on Twitter as at Brilliant Leader. So the format, each investor will have 10 minutes to present their stock, followed by eight or so minutes of questions by the fund managers. And then the fund managers will give their views on the stock and the pitch. And after the last pitch, which will be Simon, the fund managers will give their score out of five for both the stock and the pitch. So let's get started. First up is Richard Crow, who will pitch ZAR, ticker XAR, slightly off brief since Schroeder's own 28% of ZAR, and Andy mentioned it on a PI World interview back in July 2020 when it was just 58p. However, it is Richard's highest conviction stock, and with it being Richard's third sell it to the city pitch he squeezed it through Richard are you ready yes that's fine you now have 10 minutes lovely firstly this is just my opinion I have my raging bull t-shirt on I've had my bovril so I'm in a bullish mood I hold these shares so I'm talking my own book anyone watching should do their own research and not take what I say just on trust in this current consumer squeeze you want to have a stock that has a long-term high growth potential or not being too consumer facing generally. Something with a strong USP and a management that are hungry rather than cozy and comfortable. A company with plenty of cash and a stock with momentum. How often do you get the chance to buy into a recovery of a world-class tech company? One where you get the chance to see they have had world-class products that capture 100% of a given sector. It's that good. One where the CEO has just said, that the recovery phase is over and they are now in the growth phase. Zara is a fully listed company. It floated on LSE 25 years ago this year. The ticker Zara and the market cap is 180 million approximately. I rarely do tech stocks. I like stuff that's easy or understandable like retail. But prior to becoming a professional investor 22 years ago, I was a graphic designer and I used wide format inkjet printers and they fascinate me. I understand large format inkjet quite well, I think. Zars Tech is well beating. They make the print heads that sprays ink onto paper, substrate, or other objects to be printed on. Zars Apogee was in late 2013. 
In the lead up to this, Zaya developed a printhead which could print on ceramic tiles. This printhead was so good and so unique, they captured 100% of the ceramic tile market. The great thing about recovery plays is you can see the past performance. In May 2012, the shares were £2. Just 18 months later, they were £12. Zaya are still fabulous technicians. Sadly, the same couldn't be said for their previous management. The first thing they did wrong was to concentrate 100% on ceramics. The next thing was to supply third parties with parts to resell, which teed off the original equipment manufacturers that Zaha was selling to. Some competition came along and ate into Zaha's market, while OEMs moved to other suppliers who weren't going to supply parts to third parties and enabled it, them to steal their replacement sales. Zaha lost their entire ceramic market sales. The board then decided to concentrate on two different areas, a new tech called thin film and 3D printing. Thin film cost a fortune to develop and they spent £80 million of the company's cash and were still miles from achieving what they, what they wanted. 3D printing was more successful but still expensive to develop, so they moved into a joint development with the US company Stratasys. To cut a long story short, the costs were out of hand, the board was pushed out and a new board was installed. The new board were former guys from the very successful Domino Printing Science, also out of Cambridge Business Park like Tsar. John Mills is the new CEO. He started at Domino Printing and has been heading up Inca Digital for five years at Cambridge and left with glowing reference books to join Tsar. John has been instrumental in turning Inca Digital into a world-class and international respected ink bit, inkjet business over the past five years, said Inca on his departure. John Mills has a PhD in physics. As a previous customer of Tsar, it was easy for him to see what was wrong. He shut down the thin film project and sold off the 3D printing business. That drew a line under the massive R&D spending and the cash drain and left Tsar with around 25 million cash and no debt. Upon joining Tsar, Mills got a huge surprise. The technical department had cupboards full of uncommercialised, world-beating tech, all of which had been ignored by the previous board in pursuit of chasing thin film and 3D. Mills has literally taken this tech, put it all together and along with rebranding Tsar, they have created the new Imaginex platform. Mills went out to the manufacturers, asked them what they wanted and told them the old Tsar was over. No longer would they sell to third parties and a new Tsar now had a can-do attitude which was absent under the old management. Two years on, things are starting to bear fruit. Sales are now growing and some fantastic well-beaten products are coming online. In 2019, just two machines were being built to use Tsar heads. By 2021, it was 12, and so far this year, it's 15 machines that are using Tsar heads, whilst 53 more are being developed. Inkjet machine makers are starting to adopt Tsar's tech at pace. Tsar have made two acquisitions in the past year, which look like game changers. FFEI design ink printing systems. They are class act and have won a couple of Queen's Awards to industry. Megnajet, the other acquisition, provide ink delivery systems. Together, Zar can now supply the complete inkjet system components and design and help speed up the time to market for developers. Developers just need to build the running bed or, or the substrate and, and Zar can do the rest, making it easier and crucially much faster for time time to market for customers, while Zar gets to sell more kit. On top of this, they have some fantastic new printheads coming along, some already released, some coming out over the next two years, which will literally change the world. Two years ago, Zar had lost the entire ceramics market. Now they have won back 10% of it. New heads will be able to print water-based, ultra-high viscosity inks up to and over 100 centipoise, 
rather than oil-based inks. This is like printing with ink, a sticker's engine oil. This will massively reduce the energy used with 50% less water, the drying time is halved and helps customers meet carbon neutral targets and cut costs while allowing some great new printing methods to be used. Highly raised printing or the ability to print braille are just two of the examples. They have unique through-flow technology which prevents ink inkjets clogging and reduces downtime to clean the print lines out. Competitors would need to completely rethink their designs to achieve this at huge time and cost and to avoid breaching any of Zara's 301 live patents. They will be able to print up to 200, 200 degrees centigrade. Imagine being able to print glass effects on stained glass. Imagine being able to print car colours in rainbows or corporate branding or your favourite football team's colours. Andy could be buying his next new car printed in the full Spurs livery. They will be able to print at distance as far as a centimetre from the head, which is great for printing direct onto shaped items, which they can already do. They will also be able to get their print heads printing three times at the current speed. Their print heads can already print at more than 42 million dots per second. Forecast to do 1.3p EPS in 2022, rising to 8.5p in 2024. I think this forecast will prove very conservative with the current rate of adoption and sales growth. Margins should crank up with the high operational gearing. From 2012 to 2014, they saw earnings rise from 10p to 43p, as cash went from 17 million to 69 million. There has been, there's just been 3% share dilution in that time, and the company has remained net cash well above 20 million over the past 10 years, despite what the previous board squandered. This year, they will do at least 75 million sales. Gross margins will get back to 40% from the 20%, 25% mills inherited, which makes the 1.3p EPS forecast look too low, in my opinion. Considering they appear to have done earnings well above this in H2 in the year just ended, the board have said H1 orders are strong. Previously, they got gross margins up to 57%. As the year goes forward, the amount of designed machines and adoption could grow exponentially, but Zars factory has the capacity to do far more from the existing capacity without expanding. According to 5% shareholder Stuart Widdison of Odison Investments, the factory is huge and valued at just six million on the books while it is insured for a hundred million. Only one clean room of the four rooms are being utilized. The sale of the 3D business will still bring in earn it bring in earnouts and sales of the print heads to Stratasys, which means even more revenue. How often do you get the chance to buy a recovery play in a tech sector where you can see what they have achieved in the past, know that they have a proven great technology and rising net cash too? Extremely rare I'd say. The two main risks I see is execution risk, as it always is, but Mills hasn't slipped up yet and they definitely have a plan. Supply chain may be another, but they have up their stock of raw materials and finished goods. They hold 7 million plus to make sure they have plenty of backup. So a company with a world-leading unique technology, high cash generation, no share dilution to speak of, net cash of 25 million, through the recovery and now into the growth phase, with a number of large markets to attack from a zero to low base, rising sales, rising margins, and a large operational gearing, and back into profitability. These could be a great opportunity, in my opinion. Great. Thank you very much, Richard. So who wants to kick off the questions? Well, I'll, I'll kick off, you on as, a, as an interested party, having a few shares. Um, you know, when I look back, from that time, the shares went from two pounds to twelve pounds. Uh, in hindsight, they were massively over trading 
uh, and the margins were totally unsustainable. So, you know, what what confidence really is that they can get those margins back to 40% because last time it was very much a one-off situation. Well, he said, uh, John Mills on their, their company presentation just recently said they reckon they're going to get margins back to 40% in the medium term. So uh, I'm taking him on his word. I think they, I think 40% won't be an issue. It's the 57%. Whether they can get back up to there or not, I don't know. But they've got a lot of capacity there that's not being used at the moment. So as that starts to get used, their margin should, their margin should increase. Uh, they're only attacking one market at that point. I think the product, the, the Aquist product, looks really good because uh, if you want to be able to stop polluting with the with oil when you print, and you want to be able to cut your heat use, that's one thing. And if you want to be able to print with thicker ink so you can have raised print, that's another one. But I think that's quite a game changer. Aquist is the way the, the industry is going. They want want to, want to be able to use water rather than oil. Uh, so I think even cars, are, car paints are water based now instead of oil based. So uh, it's they've got a, they've got a lead there because if you're going to print with thick inks, it's no good trying to have a head where all, all the rest of the competitions are unique. You've got like uh, in a, in the competition, the ink goes into these jets into like three tanks, and then they print the tanks send the ink down the jets. With Czar, the ink flows past the jets, so as it blasts the ink through the holes, there's no there's no build up of ink for it to block. And they've been testing this. I saw a a video on YouTube with uh, their their chief operating officer, Graham Tweedle, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying they've beta tested it and the results have been absolutely fa- fabulous. So I think that's that's, a, that's another area where they could steal a march on the market, definitely, and raise their margins a lot higher. Whether they get to 57% again, I don't know, but I know... I know Mills was saying 40% in the near term. When I look at the margins, in the, if you look at the margins for the full year and you look at the margins for the first half, it looks like the margins in the second half was nearly at 40% anyway, when I look at it. so. Judith, Stephen. Um, yep, yeah, I can go on this one. I'm not conflicted like Andy is, given his history here, but uh, I'm sure we'll take that with a pinch of salt. Um yeah, I think it's always quite difficult, isn't it, when it's been a bit of a turnaround um, to really look at what normalised might be. And it's even more challenging in this um, in this market, isn't it? And I suppose my my comments would be on on that margin, uh, but also observing, as you've just said, that the, it looks as though the second half has actually made quite a nice step up. So I don't think you need to I don't think you even need to get to uh, close to over 40 percent to, to actually feel happy with you know the valuation in a couple of years' time. However, I think there there are clearly some um, inflationary headwinds and supply chain issues that, that you've highlighted. And I think they've got about 9 million worth of inventories, uh, which That's actually, if you, again, if you look back as a percentage of turnover, might look a little bit light. Is there anything you want to, to say on that? Because you know, it could easily be that they might need to hold up to 12, 12 million or so. Um, I don't know. No, the nine million of inventories was uh, finished material, finished product, and raw materials. So, I presume nine million of raw materials becomes a lot more in finished finished materials when when they when they've used that that raw material. So, it would be basically like them having more more finished product than the than the the amount that you think they they have at the moment. So, 
that's what I actually think. Nine, nine million might be, might not sound massive, massive, but I think if, as it's raw materials, a lot of it, it, it builds up into being a bigger stockpile of uh, finished items. So, uh, and he seems, Mill seems pretty confident that they've got enough to last them, and they can always, be, they can always build up more along the line. I, I presume if they can, uh, if they've got a good supply chain at, at the moment, which they seem to have to have been out to done that. Stephen, any further questions from you? Yeah, I spent most of the day reading Einstein's uh, paper on his viscosity equation, just to get ahead of the curve on Zar. So. <laughs> really like the tech um i conflicted as well it's probably top three or top five pa position for me i added to it a couple of weeks ago so i do like the stock uh, i like mr mills um i like the the clarity and simplicity of messaging their business model is quite simply to sell more print heads and there's a quiet confidence or maybe not so quiet he's very publicly said keep saying it we will be successful i think yeah. the heritage he's got you're inclined to back him. I like the way he speaks and goes about his business. There's a definite quiet confidence there. And I think the pitch deck as well that they put out is an exemplar on how to get across a manufacturing business, uh, especially when that's transitioning from recovery uh, to growth. Now, the, the question I've had, Richard, thank you for that. It's the, the so-called, I think it's Anzoff matrix where you've got, if you think of it as four, buckets you've got existing markets new markets existing products and new products and there's four strategies you can do generally the most risky strategy is to take new products into new markets uh, the less risky one is to have existing products into existing markets that's kind of an organic growth story but can you sum up at all in terms of this new product development roadmap where they're sitting is it a bit of both or are they kind of going now for a higher risk, new product, new market approach? As I've looked at it, I think they've gone, Mill seems to have realised that the, the ceramic market is a good market for them and they, they've attacked that first. They're, they've had a product there that's been good for the ceramic market and I think they've gone back at that because, like you say, an existing market, uh, existing product, they've just had to tweak and get back into the game there. Uh, the other markets they're getting into, uh, wide format printing won't be for another couple of years. So, but that's a massive market. That is huge when they get into that. And uh, the other two markets, the other couple of markets, well, printing fabrics is, I think that's going to pick up. You know, I've been buying these shirts now with all the coloured daisies on them and everything else that I've noticed. And I'm sure they're printed by, uh, you know, in China on a great big inkjet printer. And I'm hoping it's Zar that's doing it. But uh, they've got a, a big deal with Magic Cube out in China. And they, uh, they look, they look like they're going places as well, this Magic Cube. So, obviously, you've got a bit of the old China, uh, you know, COVID problems at the moment. And uh, you've got to be able to see through that. You know, we got through it. China will get through it. And uh, I think uh, I think they are attacking the right markets in the right order. You know, the Aqueous is the second, is, is a real killer product, I think. And they're getting that out second after they've generated some cash from selling uh, the ceramic, ceramic heads. And I think Aqueous will be will pick up volume really quick and it can do a lot. It can do, you know, they've already shown bottles that are printed with condensation already on the bottles. They've done it for Beck's and the, the glass, con, you know, they print, looks like condensation on the bottle, but it's not, it's inkjet just plastered on the bottle. So the bottle's all, and they can do that to shape. So you don't have to have a label to do it. They print it straight onto the bottle. So, you know, you can have awkward shapes that you've got to print and they can print around the awkward shape. 
So, so how are you going to stop yourself falling in love with this stock? Because, um, you know, you've you obviously yeah. done, you've done more research than I have, honestly. You know more right. about the stock than I do. Yeah. And, um, but when I look at it, I kind of think, well, actually, isn't that a lot of it in the price? No, I don't think it is. You know, that, that ceramic, when the ceramic went up that fast, there's a demand for inkjet printers. The, the amount of, uh, the amount of inkjet print, like like uh, Sanderson's, then they're printing their, they're starting to print their wallpapers with inkjet printers. When I used to do them all with pads and everything like that, you imagine the work and everything that's involved. Now they can do high quality printing onto wallpapers. So there's a massive markets out there that uh, you know like web offset printing. You know that, that these pr printers can fly magazines through now on inkjet printers rather than using all the old machinery and the slow stuff. And oh, you pick it up, oh, it's all wrong. Uh, I think there's so many areas for inkjet to to evolve to. Yeah, twenty five years has been nothing since I've been in it. I think the next twenty five years are the are the big years. Every place I go into is using stuff that's been printed with inkjet. I go in there. My milk bottle's got a little label on it. You know, it's got a little number on it where it tells you when it runs out of date. I go in the shop. They've got posters everywhere, all done with inkjet. My shirts are being done with inkjet. Everything's been done with inkjet, and. Uh, it's the way the world's going. We'll hair transplants now, don't we? With the old inkjet. I'm having that printed as well. Print to shape. <laughs> print to shape on my head. So, Andy, give us a summary of what you think of Zar and your view on the pitch. Well, I, I think, um, uh, as you said, we've got a big position and we kind of uh, bought it just because it, it was trading at a low, below current assets. And I thought, you know, the knowledge of Richard is, is very impressive and the amount of research he's actually done actually talking to people at the company presumably is uh, is you know, a lesson to anyone watching the show really. Thanks very much and Judith your view on Zar and Richard's pitch? Yeah I, I think it's been an absolute textbook turnaround and Mills has executed brilliantly and you've got to think that the way he's executed, he's not just going to uh, throw it all to the wind now. He's he's got he's done the hard yards, and he's um, he's exceptionally confident in his narrative, and he's been very consistent in his narrative. So, I, I really like that about the business in terms of the price. Yeah, I wish I got it in when Andy did, and in fact, I do remember him mentioning it to me at some point a, a couple of years ago, and uh, I didn't do any I didn't do anything about it. Um, that's my bad. Um, but uh, I, I think. For, for me, at today's prices, it looks cheap in, in about 18 months' time if it delivers these numbers, but it's not it's not the cheapest as it stands today. And I do think there are probably some headwinds uh, coming their way, but um, if you want anybody to manage them, then Mills is the right person. In terms of the pitch, yeah, I reiterate what Andy's saying. It's um, clearly you you know this business exceptionally well. You presented it exceptionally well, been very uh, succinct in the, the key attributes of the stock. And, um, yeah, you know it inside out great to hear and Stephen your views and if you've got anything to add on the pitch as well but start off with Zor. Uh, yes yeah, self-declared fan of Zor. Uh, hopefully if, if they are allowed to remain listed uh, we could be talking one two bagger maybe even a little bit more if you if you've got five or ten years in them um, the, the, the previous version one underpinned 30 years of that tech stack and imagine XDC is underpinning the next 30 years at Tsar. 
as well. I think there's that strength of IP. And I agree with Richard, there's almost no limit to your imagination on what print inkjet uh, technology will be used for. Um, pitch itself, I, I, I'm really glad you included slide three. Um, it, it really shows um, progress, demonstrable progress in terms of those releases. Um, I think one other slide from their slide, that Richard slide 21 they had on their investor relations would have really framed their size of their total addressable markets and the three or, sorry, four or five different markets they're attacking. That's right. Um, yeah, sorry, I could have put that one as well, yeah. I thought that was a lovely slide. Uh, they even put stars further down in the slide deck on how big they think their market share will be. And one of them was four stars, which looks impressive. I don't know what this if it's out of five stars or four stars, but uh, just... The, the history that you cover, I think, is so important for a turnaround. And, and you've obviously got domain expertise that came across really well. But every business has natural cycles, short, medium and long term. And I think you covered off those. Uh, but the history in particular, how they fouled up the relationships with their previous customers, which happens far too often where a CEO comes in and ends up ticking off the customers. Uh, I think you covered that well. Um, so, yeah, re really good. Tremendous. Thank you very much and very well done, Richard. Thank you. So next up is Neil Cooper, who will present lesser known integrated diagnostic holdings, ticker IDHC. And Neil doesn't have any slides because he's managed to slice the tendons on his hands. So he's not wearing a boxing glove. He's just recovering from an operation. Neil, are you ready? <laughs> I thought it was a hand, was a hand puppet Tamsin. when I first saw it. It is. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the show so far? <laughs> so, Neil, if you're ready, over to you. Sure. Thanks, Tamsin. So, Integrated Diagnostics is listed in London with a head office in Jersey, and it generates most of its revenue in Egypt. What does it do? It's a laboratory diagnostics group. So these are tests in Egypt for things like uh, hepatitis C, liver and kidney function, diabetes, etc. Within Egypt, uh, the market, the revenue is divided into two, two parts. That's the, the contract side, which is 55% of the business, and the walking patients, about 45% of the business. As you'll appreciate, the contract patients provide uh, a good baseline of volumes uh, to enable economies of scale, whereas the walk-ins enable uh, you know, better better profit margins and cash flow. Structure-wise, uh, the business is set up as a hub and spoke with one mega lab, uh, and now about 500 sample collection centres, or C-labs, as, uh, as Integrated Diagnostics calls them. Uh, in addition, there's a home collection service, which now contributes about 20% of revenues. Other areas of growth come from offering an increased range of tests. Uh, they've doubled from 1,000 to 2,000, and from a relatively new service, which is radiology, which is currently contributing about 1% of revenue. The CapEx requirements for growth are all relatively low. Um, for example, the, the collection labs I, 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 I mentioned, each one of those costs about 50,000 US dollars. Each one then typically uh, takes about one or two months to set up break even within five or six months and is at full capacity within within a year. So what are its operating results? Well, firstly, it's fair to say that Integrated Diagnostics was a beneficiary of COVID. So to be fair, I've split its operating results into two time periods, one from its IPO in 2015 to 2020, and the second one 
of 2021, the COVID one. So in the 2015 to 2020 period, its CAGR uh, revenues were grew at 14% and its operating cash flow CAGR was 16%. Its ROCI has followed a similar upward trend, consistently growing from 15% to, uh, in 2015 to 33% in 2020. Uh, from these CAGR and uh, ROCI results, hopefully you'll see that it's a, it's a scalable and an asset-like business. So 2021, uh, the pre- preliminary uh, accounts, final accounts for year ended 2021 were published last Thursday. Uh, revenues are up 97%. Adjusted EBITDA was up 116%, and that's uh, for an EBITDA of 48% of revenues. Net profit was up 145% for a net profit of 29% of revenues, and cash balance was up 168%. So I'm I'm sure you'll agree these are outstanding results. Uh, And in addition, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that each of these results are trending in the right direction. So the net profit at 145% is higher than the EBITDA at 116%, which is higher than revenues at 97%. So everything's going the right way. And it's also worth noting that uh, for integrated diagnostics, uh, the EBITDA is the true proxy for cash, i.e. the earnings are converted into cash. Uh, and just by way of completion, my calculation is that the ROKI for 2021 will be about 60%, 60%. Now, I'd happily accept that uh, COVID was a one-off, hopefully. Uh, so on the other hand, the core business uh, of non-COVID tests continues to grow at high double-digit rates, which bodes well for continuing future growth. Capital allocation, the cash balance at the year end, uh, December 2021, was 120 million US dollars, which is about 20% of market cap at that time. Um, And as it grows, capital allocation, in my opinion, will become increasingly important. So how is it allocating its capital? Um, How is it allocating its capital? Firstly, with acquisitions, uh, and the, the the plan here seems to be uh, to be carefully deploy the cash with careful bolt-on acquisitions. Um, for example, about two months ago, they've announced that they, uh, they're looking to buy a 50% stake in one of Pakistan's uh, largest uh, integrated diagnostic providers called Islamabad Diagnostic. Uh, and the other 50% of that business is owned by the founder slash CEO. And that's the same model as integrated diagnostics uh, carried out for their uh, uh, 50% ownership in, in Jordan. And, uh, so Islam uh, Diagnostic, Islamabadic Diagnostic, sorry, has a network of over 80 centres in 30 cities uh, in Pakistan. So it looks to me like a sensible extension of their uh, of integrated diagnostics geographic footprint. The total price paid for Islamabad Diagnostics for the 50, 50% was $75 million, which was funded by $10 million of the capital uh, plus, some, uh, plus some soft debt. Uh, the sister organisation, that, that uh, sorry, the IFC, which is sister organisation of the World Bank, uh, is, is has actually recently bought 5% of the business, and it lends it effectively soft money, about 3%. So that's attractive. Um, what will the management? That's ten million dollars out of the hundred, hundred and so million. What will it do with the remaining hundred million? Well, in its final results, integrated diagnostics has dividend payout costing about seventy million dollars. So, for investors, this is equivalent to about an eleven percent dividend yield, arguably a special dividend. Uh, management. 
the driving force is the founder slash CEO, who's Professor Hend El Shabini. She's been with Integrated Diagnostics for over 20 years and owns about 30% of the business. She's experienced and I think she's excellent. And she also has an important amount of skin in the game and some dividends now as well. Uh, risk. Clearly, the business comes with uh, with some risk, uh, particularly geopolitical risk. So if Eden and Jordan don't make you apprehensive, then uh, perhaps Sudan, Nigeria and Pakistan probably will. Uh, but I would argue that in mitigation, the relatively stable countries of Egypt and Jordan make up 95% of the revenues. Um, that said, even Egypt last month, uh, Egyptian Central Bank raised policy rates by uh, 1% which allowed the Egyptian pound to devalue by 17% against the US dollar. Valuation, well, hopefully you'll agree that integrated diagnostics is a good slash very good business. So, so what's its valuation? Well, the current cash flow, free cash flow yield is about 16%, 1.6%. That's obviously skewed because of the COVID contribution. So in my calculations, I've stripped out the COVID contribution to calculate a, a free cash flow yield of 7%, which I forecast continue growing in real, i.e. US dollar terms, at high single digits. So for a total shareholder return of at least 7% per annum, uh, 10%, sorry, 10% per annum. So thank you for listening, and I hope I've done integrated diagnostics justice. Thank you. Tremendous, Neil. Thank you very much indeed. So Andy, Judith, Stephen, who wants to kick off with a question? Um, I'll, I'll go first. Um yeah, I I find it a little bit difficult to look through some of these COVID beneficiaries um, when you don't quite yet um, have uh, a clear picture. When I was tr- trying to do a back of the fag packet a calculation on the um, return on invested capital, it wasn't up at the sort of sixty percent on the core business. It was it was probably about well high thirties, maybe forty percent. Is there any comment on that? Because uh, clearly the the COVID business was higher margin, higher volume, and therefore it's it's not the easiest to strip it out in the results that came out last week. Sure, okay. Um, okay, so yes, the COVID is a one-off, and so the revenue for this year was about 5 billion uh, Egyptian pounds, which is about 250k. My expectation is that is that the growth will continue from the 2019 at double digits, which... Um, so that's that side. My return investing capital, maybe I calculate differently. I, I did get about 40% excluding goodwill. Um, so I've got a different number to you, Judith. Maybe going forward, I accept going oh, forward. Sorry, I thought, I thought you said you'd got you'd, uh, return on capital employed of 60%, maybe not 40%. I, I think I was saying that it was probably more like 40%. Oh, I, I, 60% for the year ended 2021. Okay. So uh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. So not not not, not normalised then in in terms of a not, not, no no not normalised normalised as I, as I said it was going from it's grown from fifteen to thirty three pre COVID fifty percent or sixty percent so let's say is a one off and then let's say it falls back to okay. uh, you know mid mid thirties yeah mid thirties again okay Thank you. when you when you look at the results the thing that struck me was just the sort of massive increase in revenue per patient. And revenue per test, yep. you know, it's, yep. it sounds like they've absolutely you know, an eye-watering amount for their COVID tests in this part of the world. Actually, actually, rightly or wrongly, they've kind of done it on a cost-plus basis. So uh, 
maybe a bit more margin on that, but, the, but you're right, the fundamental cost of the COVID test is a higher cost than a diabetes test, for example, or a hep C test. Just taking Judith's point about, very well made about sort of the COVID beneficiaries, you know, holders of, well, I'm not a holder, but the holders of things like Avaxar and Synergin and EKF have all been sort of whacked over the head because actually, you know, COVID has been a far larger contributor so, you know, when I was looking through, I, I was thinking how hard it is to actually strip out what the underlying beneficiary is, benefit is from, from COVID. Uh, I think the underlying benefit will be, well, first of all, the, 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 the core business has continued to grow. You know, uh, yeah. the the first half of tw- the 2020 was a, a kind of a, a year of two halves. The first half was actually impacted by negatively by COVID. Uh, and the second half of COVID started to pick up. Uh, so, I mean, I think one of the main benefits of, of, of it will be that the brand is out there now a, a lot more uh, and that the, their context with the Ministry of Health in, in Egypt and, and the other countries will be improved. Uh, I, I think that there'll be, yeah, the, it's a one-off, but I think that there will be some stickability and they'll, they'll gain from it in the long run. And plus other things like, you know, the, the lab is now... Uh, got the confidence that it knows it can handle, you know, that kind of step up in in uh, in, in volume. Uh, it's still only running at about fifty five percent of the the capacity on on the PCR uh, PCR side. Sorry, technical. Uh, but yeah, they've, they've got the capacity. Stephen, that was that was great, and uh, especially from memory, superb. Um, thanks, Neil. The, Slightly befuddling in terms of the share price, it's back, looks like, just looking at the Bloomberg here, it looks like it's back to IPO pricing. So it's done nothing really point to point in seven years, despite the COVID bounce. The COVID bounce was pretty insipid on this one. So hopefully the the payback for that will be quite small as well. I'm just wondering, the market, for whatever reason, seems a little bit suspicious. So why is that going to change? Why is sentiment going to shift over the next five, seven years? I, I don't know, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, it was when it IPO'd, it was 10 times oversubscribed. So presumably people are excited at that time. Yeah, in, in the in the seven years since IPO, it's done nothing but continue to improve by the metrics I've, uh, I've explained. Fundamentally, I think it's just undervalued. From from my selfish perspective, I don't actually want the the business the values go up. I'm quite happy. It pays out about sixty five percent dividend payout, uh, and why would I'm quite perversely happy that, it, that if the capital side doesn't necessarily go up. I mean, perversely, I'd have actually preferred that they did some share buybacks uh, rather than mm. rather than the, the dividend payouts uh, at, at the price it's currently at. That would have been a I think a, a, a better move. And I did actually speak to management about that and they, they would need to get board approval and, and so on. So, uh, yeah. But for me, it's fundamentally undervalued. Uh, you know, ignoring COVID is fundamentally undervalued, but but hey, but that's probably because it's also not, not known. The, um, I, was just, I was just intrigued by the sort of the, the put option, you know, which is the sort of uh, in, in a different guise. When you know, the guy who uh, has got the majority of it with the, the Jordan subsidiary, which has just had probably its best ever year, uh, yeah, you know, and likes to be yeah. repeated in five years' time, and you can, you can cash out on a multiple of seven times, isn't yeah, 
No, I asked exactly the same question, actually. I asked exactly the same question, Andy. Uh, it's actually, I think he's, I think he's only got 40% now, and it's completely in the money. Uh, the, the business is covered. Uh, and yeah, it's seven times EBITDA. But you're right. He, I, I asked exactly that question. Well, surely with the, with the one-off COVID benefit, he would have said, well, seven times that, that higher number would have been a good thing. But um, but no, I was assured by management he's in for the log run, and uh, so he he's not uh, he's, he's, he won't be exercising that option. But as I say, it's in the money anyway, and they've then they've got a similar uh, uh, agreement with the um, the Islamabad diagnostic as well. So I don't know what Judith and Stephen think, but you know, do you think it's kind of tarnished a bit by the whole NMC fiasco? NMC, what's it? Was it was it was that what was that FTSE one hundred company? Yeah, with the, the, a UAE-based business, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably is the answer. I think you know if you mm-hmm. look at it, it's been you know you've still got a very large uh, PE holding there as well um, from from the yeah. territory. The geopolitical uh, sentiment is. Uh, you know, yeah. Did you say it was based in Jersey as well, uh, or sorry, registered in Jersey, operating uh, geopolitically in 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 the. Countries that have maybe got a bit of um, a, a reputation, should you say, and then um, yeah, probably a bit of sentiment against it. I would have thought. Yeah, I think one of the re- I, I agree. I agree, uh, Judith. Judith. I mean, one of the things is that they uh, they're only got a standard listing, so I think that they should possibly invest a, a premium listing. But presumably, they've ticked a lot of governance boxes. The fact that they are listed. Uh, but not not extending there's that risk, and then you're right. There is a PE fund in there, Actis, which has twenty percent. Um, but on the other hand, you could argue that's a good thing because they've been in since IPO. They didn't sell out at all at IPO and never have done. None of the shareholders have sold out. There's six hundred million shares, and, and it hasn't changed. Uh, hasn't changed at all since since, since flow. I think you made a great point of uh, on the uh, share buybacks. Um, actions speak louder than words. Um, why aren't yeah. they? You can use all the excuses I, under the sun not to do them. But. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know, Stephen, when um, I do not, again, have asked this question and uh, the answer I was given was uh, one, uh, liquidity, and two, that when they IPO'd, they told the city that they would uh, they would be paying out a, a decent dividend. So uh, so that, those are the reasons. I, I wonder if the CEO being based in Egypt, you know, I wonder if uh, being cynical that she would perhaps prefer uh, the dividends in US dollars rather than, the, rather than gaining more capital. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's disappointing that they haven't bought back more shares at that price, which is undervalued. Stephen, do you want to go ahead and give your views on integrated diagnostic holdings and on the pitch? No, no scores at this stage. Fascinating, thank you, because I've never I've never looked at it before, Neil. So thank you for that. Um, didn't even know it existed. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd need to dig down more into its relative market positioning. Um, the Pakistani acquisition, I noted that that was the fourth largest, so it's not bought a market leader. Uh, maybe it thinks it can get it to number two or one under its own steam, but I do prefer, prefer market leaders. I need to understand this geographic expansion. Are they trying to add volatile countries that are volatile at different times? So that's actually reducing your overall risk, but like good old-fashioned which in his portfolio, as long as there's little correlation between volatile stocks. 
so is it a defensive move or is it is it a, an expansionary move are these markets that have got long runways in their own rights and there's dead things that are back of your mind um but on the pitch itself i think you covered a heck of a lot of ground uh, you covered two of my favorite areas that ceos rarely cover which is rocky and capital allocation um so kudos for that thanks very much judith your views yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, I think I'm always a bit wary of COVID beneficiaries. I made a, a point of staying away from them during COVID. I have actually been on the other end of the naughty stick when it comes to uh, coming out the other end on companies like EKF and uh, Venture Life, who um, said that they weren't accounting for anything in their forecast going forward for COVID. But lo and behold, somebody managed to sneak some numbers in and... Uh, and they had to readdress the market expectations. So I think I think I'm a, a bit wary of COVID beneficiaries because of that, but also because uh, fundamentally, operationally, it takes focus away from the core business, whether you like it or not. Uh, even if it is what's perceived as being a simple solution for COVID, it's taking away resource, it's taking away capital, it's taking away uh, management time. So I think I'm a bit wary um, coming out the other end of COVID that uh, as to how earnings might look in a company like this. But saying that, you know, it comes up on our screens a lot and it's a business that I've put a cursory glance over. I've got to say I stepped away from it, not just for the COVID reasons, but because of uh, transparency in some of its... Um, uh, governance and accounting policies and uh, in that regard I think they, they say that they don't adhere to the QCA code uh, they don't have to because they're standard listing they don't have to take or adopt um, the full code and they've, they've basically put together their own, their own code uh, that says they'll uh, do things properly which which is fine but it doesn't really give me much to gauge uh, how they look at governance and with the geopolitical risk that's there uh, it's maybe just uh, a little bit too challenging for me but I can certainly understand uh, how the metrics are, are very attractive. Uh, as the pitch itself, um, yeah, I think um, I would uh, I would say the, the same as Stephen, I, I like um, pitches that focus on cash and uh, return on capital uh, or Rocky and that's some, certainly something that you, you did here and you clearly got a good understanding of the business and know and uh, presented it for both the good parts and the, the more challenging parts of the business and, and didn't try and uh, just gloss over them. So thank you for that. It's a good pitch. Thanks very much. And Andy, your view on... Yeah, I'd echo that. I, I thought it was clear and concise. You know, expect business really easily. As you know, Just like Stephen, I've never even heard of it before. I thought we were talking about a dental company until... Uh, Someone told me the D actually stood for diagnostics, but there we go. No wonder I couldn't find it this morning. And, um, you know, I think I'll probably get the management in from uh, from the pitch you've just give, given just to, to find out a bit more um, because, you know, health is something which is, you know, a long-term sort of growth area. Uh, and, um, you know, it's sort of got me interested enough to actually sort of have a meeting with the management uh, next time we're over so thank you tremendous thank you very much neil so we'll now go to simon cooper who will present phonics mobile ticker fnx simon over to you thanks tamsin hello everyone uh yeah i'm going to be pitching phonics mobile today uh fnx and um so just a bit of um of an overview about phonics uh essentially it's a platform business that facilitates uh, mobile payments for via carrier billing. So just think pay by text, for example. Uh, we've seen it with some of the charity events 
children in need, you'll see a text number come, that comes up to pay. Well, that's, that's actually phonics. They IPO'd uh, October 2020. Um, I first bought in in January 21, just to disclose that. Uh, they have a market cap of around 150 million. I would also add it's worth noting that they have a junior end. So as we go through some of the numbers in this presentation, uh, it's worth bearing in mind that they're, um, they're, they've got a junior end. One of the highlights of this company is I think they've got a very customer-focused strategy, and that's uh, one of the things I like a lot about them. They only operate in the UK at the moment where they've, where they've got completely um, organic growth because they, 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 you build the platform and then it's about adding um, scale to that platform. But they do have aspirations to repeat the model overseas, although nothing has really come of that yet. Uh, in the short term, I've no idea what the, price will, what, what, what the price will do, of course, as no one does. But my thesis here is, um, is really to look at this as a GARP, a GARP stock, so a growth at a reasonable price, um, typically over a three to five year time horizon. This is a pinch from the company presentation, actually. It's just uh, on the left-hand side there, you've got some of their main customers, so some very big names, um, ITV, Bauer Media Group, and so on. I've already mentioned Children in Need, Comic Relief. And, um, and if we move over to the middle of that slide, you can see that they've got all of the, um, the, the main carriers in the UK on board, which is actually um, quite significant. And uh, I'll, I'll come on to that a little bit later. So they've got uh, three three products and services in their portfolio. The main one being mobile payments. So literally, you know, we, we pay by text and um, uh, and they take a small percentage of each payment. So um, that accounts for 84% of their current gross profit. 19% uh, uh, sits with mobile messaging, which is a higher margin part of the business or it's a higher margin product uh, that's part of their platform um, that is growing. They're, they're moving more and more customers across to add in uh, mobile messaging, which basically means that their customer can communicate back to the end user. So if someone's paid, made a payment via uh, SMS, then uh, and, and the, the vendor has this uh, facility, they can then uh, start a relationship with the customer, with the end user. So it, it sort of becomes a, a quite a powerful part of their, their marketing, potentially. And then the managed services, quite a small part of the business overall of 7% gross profit. That mainly relates to the charity side of the business, where they, um, they don't take a percentage of the, um, of the payment, um, but they do take a, a management fee for operating uh, the event. They've got five sectors that they target, so they, they're very specific about the, the, the sectors that they use, and they've very much got a, a land and expand strategy. So the, the more established part sectors that they address are on the left-hand side. We've got media and charity. They've been going for some time, and if we move down that slide to the right-hand side, the newer sectors that they're targeting, digital services, and ticketing and transportation. And you can see in the small print there some of the detail. But I think one interesting one is they, um, they did quite a big deal recently to move into the, the, the online dating space. So that's an example of, um, of one of the digital services. But like I say, it's very much a land and expand strategy. So they established 
um, some key customers in each of the sectors, and then they uh, they build on those customers to add new new uh, customers into the mix. So their growth strategy, uh, they're still growing existing customers. Uh, uh, th- that's the amount of um, money they earn from existing customers. So I think in the interim stage, they were talking in terms of the spend with existing customers increased by more than 10%. They then can, as I've been speaking about, the the land and expand, they can then add new customers into those established sectors once they've got all the the reference points in place. They are also happy to invest in customer-led product innovations. So nearly all of their product innovations have come from customer requests, and the mobile messaging is one such example. Uh, And again, the customer focus for them uh, is that they, they want to move overseas, but they're very much focused on moving overseas with their existing customers. So they've got existing customers that want to operate this service or, or this payment uh, facility overseas. And um, and the, the idea is that they'll uh, move to those locations gradually in conjunction with their existing customers. And they're very, I, I mentioned about their customer centricity. They're very focused on not just taking any customer. They, they really um, only want to take customers that, um, that are going to be successful with this payment method. A look at some of the financials. Um, as you can see there, if we start from the top, we've got some very good top line growth running at about 30%. Um, some evidence of operational gearing as we move down to the EPS line. Um, running at 37%. I would expect over the next few years that the operational gearing will play through more. Uh, They have um, some return on capital figures to die for, obviously well over 100%. But before we get too excited about that, it's worth mentioning that 75% of their uh, earnings are distributed to shareholders as dividends. So uh, they don't have a huge amount of opportunity to invest their uh, their capital for a return. So the number looks good, but uh, but they they return a lot of it as um, as dividends to shareholders. Uh, one thing to, that stands out from that graphic that I've just shown you there, for me anyway, uh, is the uh, the negative free cash flow. And I think we should address this. Uh, if we take a look at the next slide. This is drawn from the company's annual report because they, they it, well, effectively, the answer is that they handle um, customer cash. So they're paying customers, but they're also waiting to get the money from the carriers. And they, ever since IPO, they've been very keen to say, don't measure free cash flow because that includes customer cash. Measure underlying cash flow and their underlying cash flow is positive and growing. It's also worth noting they encourage investors to focus on gross profit and underlying cash rather than revenue and free cash flow. So that's the explanation for that cash flow figure. One line I borrowed from Stockopedia, you can see very high quality rank, which you'd expect with you know, a 17% operating margin and some of their return on capital figures. Value and momentum a little bit less. All the figures on the right-hand side there are on a rolling basis. Uh, the forward uh, outlook makes those a little bit better. So I think it's on about a 16 forward PE, 20 rolling. Uh, it's over 4% forward dividend yield, 3.8 there. Um, and an earnings yield of 7%, uh, I think, is reasonable price for me. So if we can move on, quick look at the risks. They have quite a lot of customer concentration risk, so it's quite focused. We never know when technology might change. It's a regulated 
business, not a financial service, not an FCA regulated business, but obviously the, uh, the telecoms regulation. That also creates barriers to en uh, entry for the competition. They have a strong competitive position uh, in the markets, in the sectors they operate in. I think they have about a 30% market share. But nonetheless, there's always the, the risk of, um, uh, of competitive threat. And in the platform business, obviously, cybersecurity is a, is a key factor for them. And if I can just quickly take you through to the summary slide. Um, my view is that it's a very high quality business. They're very customer centric. Um, I feel that for the growth that they offer, there's a reasonable valuation, but uh, obviously we're in tough markets at the moment and there's very strong organic growth going on there. And I will hand over for your questions at this juncture. Thank you very much, Simon. So who would like to kick off with questions? I'll go then. Thanks, Simon. It, it, this is uh, an area that's bypassed me. I think my own prejudice got in the way here because I'm an Apple Pay type person. I see that Phonics signed up best of the best, uh, which have been using trying to support their share price after the collapse. Um, but nowhere could I see a DCB option. It's still Apple Pay on that one. But it has forced me to revisit those that, that stance uh, and I like what I've seen after been doing a lot of digging today to such an extent I'm going to do an Andy and uh, probably take a meeting with management uh, maybe over the summer um, I think utterly dominant in the UK market I like the overseas optionality uh, that's coming through one question for you and uh, which I'll ask them as well uh, hopefully you don't see this video prepared on the answer but <laughs> notice that they um, doubled their sales team recently, which is a big statement of intent um, uh, by adding two new personnel. So it's obviously run quite lean. Um, do you think and with that high payout that, that perhaps they've been under-investing for growth? They could have gone even faster. They've been very circumspect with their overseas going into Austria initially. Do you think they could have, for want of a better expression, gone for it a bit more than they have? Well, uh, quite possibly, Stephen, quite possibly. I, I, like you say, they've doubled their sales force by adding two people. So they've only got 36 employees in total. So it's quite a small business in that sense. Um, I don't know. It's not about volume of customers. It is about uh, scaling the volume of um, transactions that go through the platform. But one way, they're, they're very focused on sort of, landing a customer and then putting a lot of effort into making that customer successful and i think you'll find that they um they're still running at a 100 um, percent customer retention i don't think they've lost the customer that started using the platform yet um which sort of backs up the customer centricity so no not really i i you know this is not one where you're going to have 100 salespeople out there knocking on doors um it's you know, once you've got an established name in, in the sector or a couple of established names in the sector, it's very much a case of, uh, of then contacting all of the, the other people that would relate to that or the other companies that would relate to that. So not for me. I, I, I'm, I'm very happy with a 30 percent uh, growth figure. Just a quick point on Stephen's, Stephen's one about um, Austria. Uh, they made a bit of an announcement that they were expanding into Austria and then I mean, remember, when you go into a country, you've got to get all of the carriers signed up. Um, you've then, got, once that's established in you know, all the regulatory hurdles, 
uh, and then you've got to uh, sort of wait for the there's a there's a time delay before the customers start running their campaigns and payments start coming through but i think Austria is still on the cards, along with other territories, I believe. So I think we'll get some more news on overseas territories as the year unfolds. How do you think about the company? Do you think it is like a, you know, uh, a telephone company? Because, you know, most common discussion I've had my parents when I was growing up was get off the phone, you're costing me a bloody fortune. And we just see this huge sort of price deflation. Or do you think upon it as a sort of technology company where actually it can hold on to this, these prices and not get, you know, disintermediated away, which we've seen, you know, we used to pay 10p for an SMS, didn't we, et cetera, et cetera. And all those charges have come right down. So I just wondered how you, in your mind, think about it. Uh, well, very simply, I, I think about it as a, as a technology business. It's a platform business. They provide the platform uh through which the transactions occur and i don't see that changing i think um you know you need all the all of the carriers aren't going to set up their own platforms it, that just doesn't make any sense so um i i very much see it as a platform business i don't think they take an extortionate percentage i mean i think it's uh, it's all about volume of transactions so um yeah, it's a technology business. It's a it's a platform. What they need to do to keep growing is to is to add scale, and uh, that that comes from adding new customers, but also expanding the campaigns that are run by existing customers. Just taking on Stephen's point, where you know they've got a, a huge escalation of the sales force from two to four, you know, and then you read in the sort of results that actually you know you're up against Apple Pay, you know. They might have a platform, but how, how, how do you think they can really maintain a platform as they get bigger against all these sort of, you know, giants in the industry? Well, I think it depends on which sector we're talking about. But so, for example, in the charity sector, the, the text comes up on your screen. Now, maybe, you know, one day that, well, I did, you know, one of the risks is technological. Maybe at some point we'll all be snapping on a QR code on our screens rather than typing in a text number. So sure, there's there's risk on the on the technology side, but it is a growth area. It's not that people are moving away from this. It's it's that this hasn't really been available to people before. So on the on the digital services, for example, um, this now appears on on the ones they have a relationship with as a payment option at checkout. You can choose to pay Apple Pay. You can use your credit card, or you can look pay by pay by text. So it's another option, I think, and it clearly is um, is gaining some traction. How long that goes on for and how big it can become, I, I, mean, I don't think any of us really know. It's worth noting in the last period and the period before that, they had um, 100% platform uptime, which is also, I think, pretty important when you're doing very high volumes. So if you think about something like Children in Need Night, they're doing massive volumes on that that night through the through the platform, and they're still delivering um, 100% platform uptime. So another part of their customer centricity is the is the strong technology edge that I think they they provide. Judith, any questions from you? Yeah, I'm a bit of a fan of this one, I have to say. Um, I think there's a lot to like about a, a young team. You haven't mentioned the management team too much, but it's a very young and dynamic team. And I think if you meet the team, you you understand that there really are an IP, a technology business, as opposed to good old 
fashion fixed line telephony of any sort. So, um, yeah, a lot, a lot to like about it. I think one of the aspects I wouldn't mind exploring a little bit maybe goes back to Stephen's first question, and that is about um, about growth. And they they do mention some new verticals, um, including car parking and ticketing. And they're they're very cautious in the way that they talk about it, and it's you know very much a a kind of three to five year view. But and and I think the way they talk about it is nicely prudent. But knowing what's going on in that ticketing aspect, smart ticketing through companies like Tractors and some others, surely um, if they put a little bit more resource behind it, instead of maybe two new salespeople or a couple of new developers, they could gain that market share or that market presence a little bit more aggressively. I don't don't know if that's something that you've challenged them about. <laughs> well, one of the two new salespeople, I believe, is a specialist in that um, ticketing and transport space. So they're they're addressing it that way. I mean, I personally don't see the small sales force for the type of selling that they're doing. Um, you know, very targeted customers. They're not. They're not trying to do a mass marketing campaign and then follow up a hundred leads. Um, you know, we're talking about going for growth more aggressively, but they're already delivering thirty percent growth. They've got a thirty percent market share of the of the markets they address. I mean, it's pretty dominant, and I think there's probably a limit to how far this payment technology goes as well because at the moment it can only do small sums i think it's up to 40 pounds per transaction i think 240 pounds in a month for a customer so uh it's very much at the smaller end of um uh, of, of payments in that sense so there's a limit to the technology as well and that's in a way is um probably indicative of the pace that they're they're going at which for me, it's, uh, it's not – well, I'll take your feedback on board about whether they should be growing quicker, but um, I, I'm really pleased with their growth, I have to say, as a shareholder. Yeah, I would take 30% per annum every day, actually, so I'm not too worried about it. Um, is there anything you want to see on the working cap? Because it can be a little bit lumpy. Now, clearly, it's the carriers that they, they have the risk with, but it has been – or it can be pretty uh, lumpy at times – um, and that can distort cash a little bit. Is there any observations that you want to make there? Yeah, if I'm if I'm honest, Judith, um, the cash flow is the one thing that makes me, um, should we say, a little uncomfortable because I like businesses when they're really clean. When the when the when you can look at the cash conversion, the cash drops through to the bottom line. <laughs> you, uh, but it's the nature of the business because they sit in the in the middle between the um, the carriers and the customers and the end users. Uh, it's the nature that that cash operates in this way. They do make a point that they don't leave themselves exposed, so they tend to pay out their customers once they've been paid by the carriers, which happens. They get payments from the carriers once a month. Um, so yeah, if. Yeah, you know, I, I don't like seeing negative cash flow, which is why I had to do a deeper dive and show you that because it, it, they they very much make a point of saying that it's customer cash, and they've been very consistent in that. Um, so I don't think they have an issue with working capital or cash flow. I think they're 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 completely on it. They know what what their cash flows are about. I think. Okay. Thank you. Simon, thank yeah, you I, very I, much indeed. We, we've sort of run out of time for questions. Stephen, is it a quickie? Uh. No, never is with me. 
sounds dodgy. <laughs> well, instead, perhaps you can give us your views on phonics and your views on the pitch. Um, views, yeah, lots to dig into. Um, the data piece we didn't really touch on. It looks like it's more of a, a, a f f enabling relationships rather than monetizing it per se. Um, also, the strategy, uh, they've deliberately gone for high brand, lower volumes, but higher margin than the likes of a Bango or a Boku, which have gone for the app stores. And that's why their take rate is 2% rather than 5%. So uh, a bit of compare and contrast on the various strategies in this space uh, would have been uh, good. But you did cover a lot of ground, Simon. Um, top 10 customers are 80% of revenue. You know, normally that would be an amber flag at least, but as you articulated, they've not lost a client in six years. So there's definitely some sort of switching costs buried in it. Um, but yeah, it's that growth angle. I mean, like Judith, I'd take 30% um, all day. It, just looking at the FinCap notes, uh, they've got it tempered right down to 10% already um, rather than 30%. Um, now that's at both the revenue and the operating profit line. I suspect the operating profit line is unduly um, conservative because uh, they've taken all the costs of these expansions, but none of the upside. Uh, but they do look to have a s slowdown coming. Um, so 10% CAGA is very different than 30% CAGA. Um, but all told, thank you, because it's uh, and I've enlightened on this now and you you forced me to do more work on it and this this whole space. And say so that was that was my own prejudice that just kept me out of it. Um, but yeah, covered a lot of ground, Simon. A uh, really nice structure as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Andy, your views both on phonics and the pitch, but no scores. No, I thought it was a good pitch for you know first time out. I thought it was nicely paced and you know clear and concise. Um, the thing that kept me away uh, was just that customer concentration. I think you know ITV's about forty-five percent. So, you know, it's a big, big number. And I accept that, you know, they haven't lost a customer for six years, but it's just coming in one morning. And uh, at my age, I've only got so many nerve endings left. So I have to kind of try and preserve them. But yeah, well done for your first go. Well done. Thank you, Andy and Judith. Um, yeah, I think from a financial perspective, thank you for, for drawing out um, and not letting us focus on revenue and looking at gross profit because obviously there's a lot of the carrier revenue that goes through there as well and also highlighting what's going on uh, in the working cat, which you know, you, you've know you highlighted it as a, a bit of a, um, not a red flag, but certainly uh, where you, you can end up with some some lumps I think that's probably the best way of putting it and I think one of the issues that I've had with it as well is looking through to what that real free cash flow is and getting to understand that better so I think you explained that you explained that well I think the dynamics of the business for me are, are quite attractive albeit that um, as Andy says you know you, you can get a bit of a, a shock sometimes with customer dominance I think they have benefited from being a bit of a first mover um, and I do worry uh, that, you know, there, there could easily be a, a left field competitor coming out at some point. Um, so a little bit more analysis of that would have been useful. But I think overall, a, a really good pitch. Thank you for that. Thank you, Judith. And thank you, Simon. 
So now we've come to the moment that uh, everyone's waiting for. All three pitches were fantastic. So how are they going to score? So, Andy, let's go to you first for Zar, for Richards. Um, first the stock and then the pitch. So how would you score Zar out of five? I'm going to score three for the stock because I think um, a lot of the easy money's been made. But I thought... Um, pitch was excellent when well, I compare it to your first pitch Richard which had more hesitation than uh, I've ever seen but this one was absolutely word perfect and that's a four out of five for me. Fantastic thank you very much indeed and Judith your score for the stock first on Zar and then the pitch. Uh, two and a half just because of the valuation not because of the quality of the business and I think yeah I think the pitch you really came out the trap just perfectly you you made all the the right um comments when it came to it comes to what attracts a fund manager to a stock you looked at all the key attributes and put those keywords in there at the start so that really attracted the attention and I, I, yeah i would actually give a four and a half for andy's score you have seven out of ten and for judith you've got seven out of ten so stephen what is your score for czar as the stock and then for the pitch I've clearly had my Weetabix for breakfast and lunch because I give the stock four out of four. Uh, I do see... Four out of five. So, yeah, Christ, four out of five. <laughs> <laughs> I need me Weetabix for supper as well then. Um, I do still see significant upside over a three and five year view, uh, except in the, the journey that it's already had. Um, near term looks slightly fuller in terms of valuation. Uh, and for the pitch, echo the sentiments from Andy Judith. I think the the extra time helped a lot uh, this time, Richard. And also because you were immersed in that space, I think there's a, a that that domain expertise and passion and interest came across in spades. Uh, and I think that energy then you you're excited about it and it came through. But you, you did cover a heck of a lot of ground. Um, so four out of five for the pitch. Tremendous. So that's a total of eight, giving a total for Richard of 22. So we'll now move on to Neil's pitch of integrated diagnostic holdings. Shall we start with you, Judith, on the stock and then your score for the pitch? I would give this, um, for the stock, I would give it, I'll give it three, I think, um, mainly because I think it's wetted my interest once again i think for for the reasons that i talked about in in the actual uh, content of it we, we are probably not going to get there over it with with governance issues or some governance issues but uh, you know there's some key metrics there that are quite attractive so three just because i'm i'm now interested again out of the pitch i thought the pitch was really good um i think it was very well structured and i would give it three and a half out of five tremendous thank you very much indeed so that's a total of six and a half. And Stephen, let's go to you for the score for the stock and the score for the pitch, integrated diagnostic holdings. Uh, yeah, a bit of a curious egg. There is a lot to admire, um, but it just can't get over quite a lot of the wrinkles. So two out of five. Um, but I think don't be disheartened by that. I think that therein lies the opportunity then. Um, a lot of institutions can't look through uh, that aspect of it, so that that creates uh, that disconnect to probably the intrinsic value. Um, so, 
Um, but yeah, very, very interesting. And, and thank you. As I said, didn't even know it existed before today. So I do now and it's on the radar. Um, the pitch, say so you, you covered off to my favorite areas. Um, so like you did, like the fact you did a lot of your own work as well and trying to adjust the figures. Uh, I thought it was very, very good to identify the pre-COVID, post-COVID um, scenarios that we have had there um, and the, the risks. Uh, I think yeah, you, you were covered uh, in an honest fashion uh, as well. So I'd give four out of five for the pitch. Brilliant. So that's a total of six. So it's down to you, Andy. What do you give for the stock and for the pitch? Well, for the, for the stock, I'm going to go three because, you know, I can see all the risks, but I can see all the uh, potential opportunities. So it's, it's something I'm going to, going to have a look at. And I thought the, uh, again, first time pitch on, on this uh, show, great effort and not having any notes unless they were kind of written on the back of the glove puppet that I could, couldn't see. Um, so I'm going to give three and a half for the pitch. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. So that's a total of six and a half. So the total score for Neil's pitch of integrated diagnostic holdings is 19. And now we'll go to Simon's pitch for Phonics Mobile. Stephen, shall we start with you, your your score for the stock and your score for the pitch? Going to go three and a half uh, for the stock. Uh, Definitely interested in it. Uh, they dominate the UK market. Um, they've got a geographic expansion, customer-led um, plan, uh, which reduces the risk on the one hand, um, albeit they're only starting now. Can they do it on a cold night in Vienna in Austria? Uh, that is the question that needs answering. Because if they can replicate the UK model across Europe, then there's something still very special here. Um, but given that, unknown it's three and a half uh, out of five and also the pitch three and a half um as well simon i think it was very very good especially first attempt uh as i mentioned it, i just missed maybe the the strategic element the compare and contrast to its um listed peers of which we've got baku and bango on our doorstep uh they're going at it in a very different way um, why you feel phonics is, is is the better way, and as Judith alluded to, um, some comment on management. The smaller the company, the more important the management. Um, it's a founder-led business. Uh, CEO owns a big chunk as well as the original founder as well. But uh, yeah, enjoyed it, Simon. Thank you. Tremendous. So that's a total of seven. And Andy, your your score for phonics and for the pitch as well. Right, for the stock, just because of that uh, customer concentration, uh, I'm going to go for three. Um, as, I, as I said, I thought for the first time out, both you and uh, Neil, tremendous effort. And so I'm going to give you three and a half for the, uh, for the pitch. Brilliant. So that's a total of, five, of six and a half. And Judith, what's your score for phonics and for the pitch? Um, for the stock, I give a three and a half. Um, again, just down to that uh, that customer um, dominance, um, but at the same time, I think it's got a, it's got some really good IP. They keep doing what they're doing, and uh, make sure that um, any 
competitors out there either they swallow them up or they, they march ahead in terms of IP, then I think they've probably got a, a good lead for, for a good period of time, I suspect. Um, and for the pitch, I think it was an honest representation of some uh, on the on a look through in the numbers. So thank you for that. And therefore, uh, I give you a three and a half. Tremendous. Thank you very much. So that's a total of seven. So, final scores. Well done to Neil. You have come third with 19 with your stock integrated diagnostic holdings. And that is with Simon second with Phonics Mobile with 20 and a half. And that makes the person who sold it to the city for the third time, Richard Crow with Czar and his score of 22. Absolutely superb, Richard. And I'm great blushing. pitches by everyone. Absolutely yep. superb. Yep. They really were. So huge thanks to your effort and for all the time you've put into it. It's really appreciated. And of course, enormous thanks to the panel, Andy Bruff, without whom this would not have happened, Judith McKenzie and Stephen English. Always fantastic to hear your views and always very entertaining as well. So thank you very much. And for our next Sell It to the City, we have a panel of university undergraduates who are involved in their university's investment club or fund, and they're going to pitch their highest conviction stock. So if you know any undergraduates who'd like to take part in the university challenge for the investing world, contact me via the PI World contact page. Thank you all for watching. Do give us your feedback and see you next time. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.